another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I am your host, Bill Real. Today we've got a special guest. I'm going to bring him on. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to call him by the name Moroni today. Moroni, how are you? Good, Bill. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, just a FYI, we are using as a backdrop image uh, an endowment room in the, in, I don't remember what temple it is, but in one of the LDS temples. Uh, because today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, the the temple and we're going to talk specifically about those things that uh, that Latter-day Saints consider to be deeply sacred. And that is not only the uh, tokens and signs and penalties, but also the oaths and covenants. And it's with a specific purpose in mind. And I think as people tune in and watch, you'll understand. I, I want to say on the on the forefront, you know, I, I realize, Moroni realizes that um, the things that go on in the temple are held to be sacred by believing faithful members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I don't have any, like, like I'm not here to mock it. There are other folks out there in the post-Mormon community uh, who have made a stronger effort to kind of show those things and at times have kind of been mocking towards those things. But I really want to talk about things from a point of view that is this, which is we human beings throughout our lives enter into contracts and obligations with people. We, we make agreements and a healthy agreement requires um, consent. It requires uh, as much of full disclosure as is possible. Again, we can't know everything about everything, but where there's information available, we have a right to be pointed to that information so that we can make uh, informed decisions about the agreements and contracts and obligations that we enter into. And as this episode unfolds, you'll see that we're really trying to make a strong point that folks who enter into these covenants don't do so with consent. And because they couldn't, because they don't know really the backdrop of what's going on in front of them. They couldn't know because nobody's telling them. And so uh, just a heads up that we are going to cover uh, material that, again, believing Latter-day Saints might might be offended by. I promise to try my best to be uh, respectful. Moroni said he'll do the same thing. And we have no desire to to be mocking or to make fun of in any way, but rather to help people have enough information and enough context that folks can make um, healthy choices about what they want to do and not do uh, with their life within this uh, particular uh, religion and specifically these specific rituals and uh, uh, practices that go on inside LDS temples. Is that, uh, and I see you're muted, but does that sound good to you? Yeah, definitely. I echo, echo everything you just said. And rather than mocking, I feel like what we're doing is actually taking it quite seriously. Yeah, uh, We're taking it seriously, uh, what actually happens in the temple um, and, uh, and um, you know, the, uh, and what people go through in the temple. And yeah, far from mocking, I, we just want to have a, a frank discussion about um, what actually happens. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm super excited uh, for the conversation. And uh, with that, we'll kind of get started. So... Uh, the reason we're having this conversation today is because you and I, Moroni, we had uh, a couple conversations over the last few weeks, and uh, you brought to my attention 
uh, a certain concept going on in the temple. And I thought it was super important enough that we should absolutely cover it. And I really think this is going to be a, a really important episode that we do for Mormon discussion uh, under that brand. And um, I've always tried to pride myself on giving people information. And as we talk today about the temple, what, what comes in is when you're not, when you are making obligations that don't have you being, have giving consent. And when you, there is some level of deception happening within uh, a contract that you're entering and when that deception or is happening, there's always this conversation around fraud. And, and we thought today we'd start off and I'd give you a few minutes to talk about fraud from a secular perspective, like what it takes to meet that litmus test um, to qualify uh, in terms of both legally and on a secular level of what, what constitutes fraud and hence kinds of sets up our conversation to understand why we think uh, the deception that we're going to point to here later on in the temple uh, feels so egregious <clears throat> And, uh, and why don't you get us started and share as much as you'd like about um, that part, because you kind of brought that to me and said, hey, I've been doing some research and here's, here's why I think this is so unhealthy and egregious. And I wanted to give you some time to explain that. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I uh, am definitely not a legal expert in this area. This is more of a hobby horse and just doing some research on it. Um, but having gone to the temple myself, uh, you know, I felt uh, definitely uh, deceived and um, and we'll talk more about my experience later on. Um, but I think, uh, you know, some ideas came to mind and in searching on the Internet, I found that, you know, fraud. Like, it, and, and this is kind of a state by state thing, not so much like a federal thing. Um, so these are these ideas are taken from uh, court cases in, in Utah. Um, and so keep that in mind as people. Um, wherever you've gone to the temple, you know, you might have different, uh, different standards, uh, as far as whether you've been a victim of fraud. Um, but here's a definition that I, I found, uh, from a Supreme court case in Utah. Fraud is a false representation of an existing material fact made knowingly or recklessly for the purpose of inducing reliance thereon upon which a plaintiff, uh, reasonably relies to their detriment to make fraud actionable. There must be some damage to the plaintiff to, for which he seeks recovery. And I know, uh, Bill, that there's probably a lot of people, ex-Mormon or Mormon alike, you know, maybe rolling their eyes. Okay, we can't sue the church over this type of stuff. You know, you went to the church, you went to the temple voluntarily. They didn't make you uh, do anything. Um, and uh, and so what damages could you have suffered? And so um, in, Utah, in Utah, you can actually uh, suffer damages for um, emotional damages. You can suffer, you can, you can have a claim for emotional damages. Um, here's a case, and it wasn't always like that. Um, here's a case from 1992 uh, that talks about how fraud, generally speaking, is, is going to be an economic concern and not an emotional concern. So this is back in 1992. Deceit is an economic, not a dignitary tort, and resembles in the interest it seeks to protect a contract claim more than a tort claim. For this reason, though, uh, for this reason, those strong men may cry at the loss of money separate recovery for mental anguish is usually denied in deceit cases just as it is denied in contract cases simply because emotional distress though resulting naturally enough from many frauds is not one of the interests the law ordinarily seeks to protect in deceit cases 
So that was from 1992. Um, and then in 2001, we had a new standard established by the Supreme Court. Uh, and so this is, the, this is what the court said there. We concur with those jurisdictions that allow the recovery of emotional damages that are the natural and proximate result of fraud. Upon proof of intentional misrepresentation, a plaintiff may recover emotional damages that are, are the natural and proximate result of the defendant's conduct. As a general rule, emotional damages should be awarded in fraud actions. And so, so I think, uh, you know, I think that the question is, did the church commit fraud? Um, and, and then from there, you have to be able to show your damages. So here's uh, from another case uh, in the Supreme Court of Utah from 2003. Um, they kind of went through uh, and established the elements of fraud. And what's kind of nice, if you if you ever looked at these cases, usually the court's pretty pretty good about outlining their you know what they're going by their modus operandi. And so in this case, they they point they make nine points. So in order for someone to <clears throat> in order for someone to show fraud, they have to first uh, show that there that there was a representation was made to them. The second thing they have to show is that, that the representation was concerning a presently existing material fact, and then uh, which was false, and that the and that the uh, the person making the representation knew to be false or made recklessly, knowing that they were that there was insufficient knowledge upon which to base such a representation, um, and that it was this representation was made for the purpose of inducing the other party to act upon it, and that the other party acting up reasonably and in and in ignorance of its falsity did in fact rely upon it and that they thereby they were induced to act and then that that party uh <clears throat> suffered uh, injury and damage um and so those are the nine elements uh they have to base and so i won't, I won't go through that again um there's uh, and that's just for fraud so uh, maybe we will you know someone has to say something about something that's relevant and, and happening right now it has to be false the person saying it had to know it was false uh, or or make a statement right without and i think in our case they know that what they're doing is false um and then for the purpose of inducing the other party to do something based on this representation that party does something um acting reasonably uh in your in, in ignorance of the falsity of, of the representation um and they uh they did rely on that false re representation and were induced to act and then they suffered that injury and damage and i think that's where a lot of people are going to say well what kind of how what kind of injury or damage could you have suffered and we'll talk uh, more about that next um there are a couple different kinds of cases available uh in uh, um to sue and in, in regards to emotional damages um the first one i'll go over is the intentional affliction of emotional distress uh this is from a case uh, in the Supreme Court of Utah, 2001, four elements here. Uh, the first is that the conduct complained of was outrageous and, and intolerable, and that it offended against the generally accepted standards of decency and morality. Um, the second one is that, that the defendant intended to cause or acted in re reckless disregard of the likelihood of causing emotional distress. And the third was uh, the third is that the plaintiff suffered severe emotional distress. And the fourth, that the defendant's conduct approximately caused that emotional distress. And so that's basically the first uh, element there. Um, the conduct complained of was outrageous and intolerable um, and in that it offended against the generally accepted standards of decency and morality. And, and you know, Bill, I haven't gone through a exhaustive search as to what's typically, you know, what, what's the standard for that. Um, but I think, if, I think you have a case if you can say that what they did was, um, you know, something had you known you, you wouldn't have taken part in it you know and and had you known um 
and if you're able to call what they did outrageous or intolerable, intolerable, I think that if you can say that it's it's so offensive that we don't want to show it to anyone, right? You know, we can't. There's no, uh, you know, I think that 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 could be a basis to say that it's, uh, offend that it would offend against the generally accepted standards of decency morality. Um, you know, and that the second element that the defendant intended to cause or acted in a reckless disregard for the likelihood of causing emotional distress. I think what we might see today is that they definitely intended to uh, uh, to cause or uh, um, or acted in rec reckless disregard because they hid it. I mean, they're actively hiding this and having people uh, go through these things. Um, it, they know that this is that's, that this will freak people out, and so they 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 hide it, but they still have you take part in it. Um, and then the plaintiff suffered severe emotional distress. That's the hardest part, I think, just showing what kind of distress you had. Um, I think for, um, and we can talk maybe more about that. And then that the defendant's conduct approximately caused the emotional distress. So that that's that's an intentional infliction of emotional distress. And then the second is a negligent infliction of emotional distress. And that's where um, the defendant should have realized that their conduct involved an unreasonable risk of causing distress. And that from facts known to them, they should have realized that, that the distress, if it were caused, might result in illness or bodily harm. So the first element there um, is uh, the defendant should have realized that their conduct involved an unreasonable risk of causing distress. And so definitely, I think when in this, when what we're going to talk about today, when when the uh, the person, the group uh, organization is actively um, trying to mask their actions and actively you know, trying to hide what they're doing, then I think that they understand that there's a risk of causing distress. That's the whole reason why they're trying to hide it. Um, yeah. And and then from the facts known to them, they should have realized that, that I mean, that's that they, they definitely realized that the stress. I think this is the, the harder part with this one is that you, you have to show that there was a result in illness or bodily harm, but you might be able to really relate that just to fraud more generally and to show damages. Um, you know, even if they were acting negligently, um, you know, I think that you could kind of tie that back to the um, elements of fraud and to show that, uh, that even if they were acting negligently, they still made false representations that induced you to act and suffer damages. So, the, sorry, uh, I just went through a ton of <laughs> kind of boring legal stuff. I didn't really give you a chance to, to chime in with any questions or anything. Did you have any, any thoughts on that stuff, Bill? Yeah. First off, I think it's important. I hope that the listeners, and if you're if you are listening to this in podcast audio form, my two cents would be to go over to our YouTube channel and watch the video because the slides that we're going to show today are absolutely crucial to understanding the issue and getting context, uh, Context, especially if, you know, we were doing the math yesterday, me and uh, actually, I think it was Radio Free Mormon that I was talking to. And he said, you'd have to be at a minimum, you'd have to be 51 years old to have experienced the endowment as it was given prior to the changes in 1990. Wow. And so most young people, all young people have not experienced it. Most young people's parents probably haven't experienced it. So now you're back to your grandparents and maybe your parents. And this, this legal conversation I think is crucial. I'm not suggesting anybody go out and sue the church, but it, at least as we get through this episode, I think people understand the legal argument, I think, might be there. And um, what came to mind immediately, Moroni, was when all of us go to the temple for the very first time, there is this moment in the beginning, and this isn't even the crux of the things we're going to go into, but it is striking to me, and it sets kind of the bar in terms of how the church deals with you and I as agents unto ourselves. 
in the beginning of the endowment, you are given a chance to leave. Uh, if you're, if you do not want to enter into the oaths and covenants of this day, uh, simply raise your hand and someone will escort you out. But what the church doesn't do is they don't tell you what you're about to enter into. So it's not a consensual agreement because yes, you stay, but number one, you're under undue pressure because your family and friends are there. Everything in your church life has built up to this moment that you're taking out your endowments. They're saying they're giving you a chance to leave, but you don't have a clue what you'd be leaving. And so even on the onset, there is what I think is egregious unhealthiness in how we treat other people as independent individual human beings and how unhealthy it is to not give people enough information that their consent can be real. Um, it would be like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, but if I were to uh, invite a friend back to my house and give them the chance to leave um, and, and wants the, and they say, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll go to your house. And then once we get to my house, they find themselves in the middle of uh, illegal activity that they would have had nothing to do with or um, some type of unhealthy behavior, um, some event going on that violates certain laws and things. It, it just would be unhealthy to do that to somebody. And at least to some degree, the church here is not giving people enough information to really understand the context of what's going on. And, and perhaps they never get it. And, and at the very, very best, they get it way too late. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the changes in 1991. And, uh, and I think, you know, having gone to the temple myself uh, many times, you know, it's, it's a, it's already kind of, it's a totally, and like I said, I don't want to be mocking, but it, you know, I think bizarre is a, is a fair descriptive word. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's very, not like any other thing we do in the church, not like anything I've ever seen, frankly, in the world either. Uh, it's a very different thing. Um, and and I think, you know, you go a few times and you kind of get used to it and everyone's, you know, everyone is, uh, you know, pushing you along and you got to do, do the thing. You're doing it for a reason, usually going on a mission or getting married or whatever. So you kind of just grin and bear it. Um, but it wasn't until I realized later, um, and I'd heard about the penalties and things like that uh, prior, but it wasn't until um, I made the connection that the penalties are there today. Right now, people are in the temple and and uh, and the penalties are still there. And I went through the penalties. Um, and that's where I feel like along with, you know, it's already weird that you're kind of put in the situation and bizarre things are happening. You're making promises that you weren't aware were going to be made, um, you know, very lightly referred to in preparation for it. Um, but even beyond that, you're making these penalties, which I which I boil down to death oaths. Um, and you're doing it unwittingly and actively being deceived. And that's what kind of just really just blows my mind. And that's why I reached out to you because I feel like this is something that should be way more talked about, uh, way more understood that um, they, that these penalties were taken out in an attempt to, to hide them from people, but they weren't, they were still doing them. We're still, the penalties are still in the temple. And, um, Anyway, sorry, I, I can get on my soapbox pretty quick about that. So no, that's it's good stuff. I, uh, I I sit and think about how high demand fundamentalist religions often 
kind of numb us to our own resolve to stand up for ourselves. Like we, like you, you say, we are constantly having strange things thrown at us over and over again. And we're just taught and encouraged by the system as well as the other people in the system um, to just go ahead and take it, just to go ahead and uh, sit with and be okay with the bizarre and the strange and the unhealthy all around us. And Mormonism does its fair share of that. And so we'll jump into this. I thought it'd be, uh, I think it's important and crucial to the conversation that we start off talking about the endowment as it was given. And this is not by any means, this is not meant to be um, fully uh, educational in terms of, you know, dates and history of how the temple ordinances came to be, but rather to give you an, enough context that what we talk about later on will make sense. And so the first thing I wanted to say was that ordinances, this again, this is what Mormonism tells us, that ordinances come from God and are unchanging. Joseph Smith, the prophet himself said, ordinances instituted in the heavens before the foundation of the world in the priesthood for the salvation of men are not to be altered or changed. Um, he also said, quote, and this is secondhand, by the way, this is history of the church, and this might be Wilford Woodruff or somebody else, but this is a secondhand quote. He set the temple ordinances to be the same forever and ever and set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man or to send angels to reveal them. Uh, history of the church, volume four, page 208. And then the third one, the gospel cannot possibly be changed. The saving principles must ever be the same. They can never change. The gospel must always be the same in all of its parts. No one can change the gospel. If they attempt to do so, they only set up a man-made system, which is not the gospel, but is merely a reflection of their own lives. If we substitute any other gospel, there is no salvation in it. The Lord and his gospel remain the same always. That's the prophet's message, Church News, June 5th. 1965. And so I simply want to say here that it becomes really clear when you understand the history of the church. And by the way, that last quote had lots of ellipses. We only took out the prevalent portions. Um, I don't think I'm saying anything out of context. I would encourage people to find the prophet's message, church news, June 5th, 1965, read the entire segment. But the quote is super long. And these were the prevalent parts, the relevant parts. Um, it's important to say that in the early history of the church, once you understand the context, in the original delivery of the endowment to Joseph Smith, it seems clear that the church and the prophet Joseph Smith and its early leaders after him understood that the endowment needed to be kept exactly the way it was and that it was not allowed to be changed. And that while we'll get to later on, the apologist attempt to parse out the endowment and the presentation of the endowment it would appear to the early leaders, Joseph Smith and the church as a whole early on, that those were one and the same, that the signs, the tokens, the, um, the, the wording of the obligations that we make, the covenants that we enter into, we are told over and over those come directly from our Father in heaven through revelation and that they cannot be altered. Uh, is that your understanding, Moroni? Yes, yeah. I mean, that's the whole reason why we need the restoration, right? It's because men changed these things that, you know, were 
from the foundation of the world, right? I mean, I believed that Adam was doing the same things that we were doing in the temple. You know, yeah. I believe that Adam and his family did the same things um, because they, it's how it was from the foundation. And that's why, and that's what needed to be restored. Perfect. And then the, the second point I want to make is that the signs and tokens that are given in the temple enable you to pass by those spirits who are in charge of guarding the gates and admitting those who qualify. So here's a quote from Brigham Young. And I remember this quote being in the Brigham Young manual um, that we used years ago called the teachings of the presidents of the church. And every year we would have a different prophet. Brigham Young actually took two years, but every year we'd have a different prophet. And uh, this came out of the Brigham Young manual, as well as being a quote that uh, we're pulling from other places that you can just go on the internet and type in any of these keywords and it would come up. Quote, let me give you a definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being able to give them the key words, the signs, and the tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood and gain your eternal exaltation in spite of earth and hell, Brigham Young. Any thoughts on that one at all, Moroni? Uh, <clears throat> no, I think uh, it's, it's talk, it speaks for itself pretty well. Cool. Then uh, from here, we'll move on to this. So while that's the way it was set up in the early church, the reality is that it has the, the temple and the, the oaths that we make, the covenants that we make, the signs and tokens, they the church has little by little gotten more and more uncomfortable with that original endowment presentation that over the decades and even centuries, the church has made soft, subtle changes at some points, really significant changes at other points. And the apologists have come in and attempted to kind of create a different argument. So, what they've done is because people go like, hey, the early leader said it's not able to be changed, and yet look at all these changes, and we'll talk about some of those as we go through this conversation, and they need to come up with a response to that, and the response that they've come up with is the things that have been changed aren't what the early leaders were talking about. The early leaders are talking about the gift of the endowment and not talking about the signs or the tokens or the keywords or the wording of the oaths or the wording of the covenants. Instead, it's whatever you end up getting that cannot be seen. And that just seems to go so much in violation of what the early leaders said. So what apologists do is they try to separate what they call the endowment and the, the presentation of the endowment. And uh, essentially to say like, look, all the things you actually wear, all the things you say, all the wording of the covenants, those things can all be altered and changed whenever leaders of the church want to. It's the actual thing you can't see, um, which is the endowment itself, and that's the thing that can't be changed. But that seems to run deeply contrary. Number one, it seems to run deeply contrary to what early leaders said, including the, the quotes that we've read already. And two, it seems to make it impossible to claim anything's change that's important because the apologists have essentially made an argument where everything can be changed um, 
which seems a little deceptive, at least in my mind. Any thoughts from you there? Yeah. I mean, I'm just, while you're speaking, I was just reminded about how, um, you know, we don't, we, we say that, uh, every other baptism is, uh, has no, no validity. Right. And one of the, one of the reasons why we say, and at least is what we taught when I was on my mission, um, when the early Christian churches, when they went apostate and they, and we had the great apostasy, it's because they changed things like baptism, right? You could, they, they changed it from immersion to a sprinkling or whatever, you know, and we, and we would talk in a really diminutive way against these other religions. Um, but that's exactly that, you know, if, if you can change everything about the endowment, but as long as you call it the endowment still, then that, then everything's fine. Um, same thing with the baptism. Why are these other, uh, these other, um, baptisms from the other, other churches that we use for apostate, we use that as a basis to claim that they were apostate, but they were doing the same thing. They're saying, look, we have the, the idea behind the baptism is the same thing. It's a promise, you know, with God, you're in, in his church, right? We still call it a baptism, but instead of doing complete immersion and, and whatnot, well, we can do it through a sprinkling or we can do it through whatever. I mean, it's the same, this is the same exact argument. Either the, the things are important, how they, it, either they hold weight, the actions you're doing and the things you're doing hold weight, um, or they don't, you know? And so anyway, I just thought of that, uh, contrast. Yeah. So. As you're pointing out the apostasy hinged the way I was taught. It sounds like the way you were taught it. I know it's the way radio free Mormon was taught it as well. Um, the, the apostasy hinged on us in collective agreement as Latter-day Saints going like all of these other faiths, Catholic church being predominantly the one little by little corrupted the ordinances. They little right. by little changed the the wording and the commitments that were being articulated to the point where they no longer were doing things in the prescribed way correct yeah exactly they and yeah. so that and that was the whole basis for them saying that they that nothing they do counts anymore yeah and then the second part about apologist is that uh, in the past i've heard numerous times and this argument by the way you will hardly see it anymore but i want to note it in the past they have argued that the masons had a corrupted form of the endowment that went all the way back to Solomon's temple, that Joseph Smith, due to his exposure to masonry, restored the the endowment in its pure form. And there are quotes out there by Wilford Woodruff and others that testify of that that idea. Uh, There were many early leaders who saw Joseph Smith uh, participating in masonry as a precursor to gaining uh, awareness and understanding of these corrupted ordinances. The Masons had corrupted it. It went all the way back to Solomon's temple, that the endowment is an ancient uh, ritual and that, um, let me, let me collect my thoughts here for just a second. Um, that Joseph by heavenly father's revelation and help took that corrupted form of the endowment and restored it to its pure form. And it even got to the point where I'm going to, we're going to do a slideshow today and this will be the first one. Um, It even to the point where, for instance, this is a 12th century uh, relief in, I believe uh, Naples. Um, I think that's Italy, if I'm not mistaken. And so this was an ancient, this is a very old uh, piece of, of stone that has etched in it, you can see two people who are embraced in some sort of grip. They are, they have a hand on each of their shoulders. They have an angel that is putting their, their heads together. And they are, it's probably, it looks like, again, I'm just from the outset, I, 
I have certain a certain lens that I'm seeing this through, but it looks like two people who are communicating to each other quietly into their ears. And when this was given to me, it was while I was struggling with trying to understand the connection of masonry to Mormonism. And somebody, uh, one of the apologists sent this to me and said, Bill, like there's so many things we don't know. Like, look at this image. What do you think is going on? And when you want to believe in the temple endowment being ancient and a res- and that it is a restored form of a corrupted ordinance that the Masons had, something like this is deeply helpful to that kind of uh, goal or um, desire. And the reality is what we what we need to understand is that masonry doesn't go back that far, the Masonic rituals. And even the apologists today agree, that it is a bad argument to suggest that Joseph took a corrupted form of the endowment that the Masons were doing, that he learned in Nauvoo in, say, 1842 or so, and that he is restoring a a corrupted form back to its pure form because the rituals that are in Masonry just aren't ancient. Now, there may be echoes of things. There may be similarities of things. For instance, what I see in this 12th century relief fits into my Mormon lens, but what we're not doing as Mormons, because we're limited by the culture, context, milieu, and experience of living a Mormon life, what we don't know is how this kind of an image would fit into history in in its totality and how religions all through history, not just Christian, not just the monotheistic religions, but how all kinds of religions would incorporate these similar kinds of concepts in other places that have no connection at all to Mormonism, but which when we, with our Mormon lens, look at it, we automatically see things that build our testimony. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So there's that. So there's this little piece. Um, The next thing I wanted to get into was the reality uh, is that the endowment is heavily plagiarized from masonry and it doesn't go back to solomon's temple and so we were going to talk a little bit about some of that and so let me get to slide number two this is just an image from a masonic initiation uh in a masonic initiation at least in some forms of it the initiate the person being initiated is blindfolded um there are things that are done to them and in the context of the room they're in that they would kind of be caught off guard and not know exactly what's going on outside of that blindfold and might cause a little bit of apprehension. Like it's a little bit of a hazing kind of initiation ceremony that Masons do. And so this is kind of portraying, you know, the story that's being told to him as he's being initiated and what he perceives the story as from underneath the blindfold. But just to, it's just kind of a cool little image. Um, you did you have a thought here? Because I know yeah. you mentioned uh, Kimball and Pratt here. Yeah, kind of um, just to support what you were saying about how uh, um, Joseph Smith plagiarized the the uh, ceremony. And you know, I had recently listened to your last Mormonism live with RFM, and it was it was just great. But I, I you know, it's just amazing how deep these, these things go, and and you can see how you know the apocrypha and how um, Adam Clark's Bible commentary really influenced Joseph. And he really did kind of infuse a lot of, a lot of the same things and ideas, almost verbatim. Right. And so it's just so easy to see this is the next, this is his last final step 
you know, before he was uh, um, assassinated or murdered, um, he they had just become uh, members of um, Masonry uh, at this point, um, and uh, in in early 1842, and um, and Joseph, you know, saw. Uh, he went through the, and he, you know, there'd be a really fun podcast where you just kind of go through the temple timeline of the original temple endowment and things like that. But he, he was rushed through uh, the Mason uh, procedures, you know, all their steps and whatnot. And he was made a master Mason fairly quickly. Um, and so he was able to see um, a lot of the things that they did, all the things they did. And he, he just took it right up. And so here's a really good quote. And I found this uh, at a church website, and I think we'll put the link up in the show notes. But this is a quote from uh, Heber C. Kimball, the Parley P. Pratt. And this is from June 17th, 1842. So uh, Heber Kimball says, We have received some precious things through the prophet on the priesthood that would cause your soul to rejoice. I cannot give them all. I cannot give them to you on paper, for they are not written or not to be written. So you must come and get them for yourself. We have organized a lodge here of Masons since we obtained a charter. That was in March. Since that time, there have been nearly 200 made Masons. But Brother Joseph and Sidney Rigdon were the first that were received into the lodge. All of the 12 apostles have become members except Orson Pratt. He hangs back. He will wake up soon. There is a similarity of priesthood ordinances in Masonry. Brother Joseph says Masonry was taken from priesthood but has become degenerated. But many things are perfect. So clearly, um, the reason why the apologists were saying would used to say that this was part of a, an ancient ceremony is because that's exactly what Joseph Smith thought. <laughs> you know, he thought he he found, you know, this awesome hidden ceremony um, that uh, that went back, you know, um, to to the or the original priesthood, and uh, and that's what he taught his followers back then, and that's and that's why they did it. So love it and so up on the screen right now you're seeing you're going to see some images of masonic things for instance in this image there are three men who are wearing the masonic garb and i would simply note look at the apron look at the compass in the square notice that when you're in the temple that you are wearing an apron notice that the compass and square is uh, incorporated uh, far and wide in within the temple symbolism and uh, notice there's a certain, you know, there's handshakes or some type of grasp that's happening. And so there's that one. Um, here's another one. Another, again, they've got the aprons on. Uh, some of those aprons have the compass and the square looks, on them. Looks like they have a sash on. They have a sash on. Um, they, that uh, sash also has a compass and a square on it. And uh, so there's that. Um, I, I just, you know, what you just read, that quote to me is crucial. It is, again, the early members and leaders of the church clearly understood that Joseph was claiming to have taken a corrupted form of a uh, sacred ritual that the Masons had corrupted, and he is restoring it. And, uh, and again, if that's been restored, and if the early leaders said, look, that's straight from God, we can't alter it, we can't change it, as we get into talking about some of the changes that have happened, I simply would say, is Mormonism really holding, uh, in, a, in a way that uh, maintains integrity, is it really holding on to itself the way Joseph Smith and the early leaders said it should? And I think that's a, a, a discussion for another day, but I think it's an important concept to bring up. Um, I want to now say 
um, we want to kind of go into some of this similar symbolism that's going on. So it's not just a sash. It's not just an apron. There is so much overlap between Mormonism uh, and Masonry. And I think for the rest of our discussion, this is crucial to the context of that. So uh, these are the Masonic uh, handshakes or grips. Um, some of these will look uh, significantly familiar to those in Mormonism. Uh, some of them will look a little different. Um, a little story here is that that bottom one, the real grip of a master mason lion's paw. I used to work at a floor covering store in Ohio and a customer came in one day. He wanted some rooms measured and we were short a vehicle. So I actually rode with him. And when we got back to his house, I got out of his vehicle and he proceeded to go to shake my hand, but he did this bottom handshake. And I, I was caught off guard. It was strange to me, but I'm Mormon. I've been to the temple. Weird handshakes are not new to me. And I also was well-read. I understood the issues in Mormonism. So as soon as he grabbed me by the arm, it was kind of like up my arm a little bit with the way he did that. And when he did that clasp, I immediately looked him in the eye and I said, you're a Mason, aren't you? And he said, I am. How did you know? And I said, because I'm a Mormon and that's too close to what I do. <laughs> and so we had a little chuckle and he talked about some of the stuff going on with Mormonism and Masonry. But just again, notice those, um, you know, that past grip of a master Mason, that second one from the bottom, that's got a little bit of similarity to something. Hey, Bill. Uh, yes. Can I jump in real quick? Please. Um, I, 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 I was just thinking of something where how to me, this is almost the first step of the fraud where. Um, it's clear that Joseph Smith took this from masonry. It's clear, I mean, that, um, I mean, if even if he didn't have this quote, and there's more quotes like it, I believe. Yeah, there's lots it's, of them. It, it's very apparent, it is, right? Um, and so, and, and, and up till, I think, within our lifetime, we, the church maintained that, right? We didn't understand that masonry, the origins of masonry, don't even go back to Christ, let alone, you know, back to Adam, right? And, uh, and, but once it was made apparent, I think, you know, sometime in the seventies or around there, it became apparent. Oh yeah, definitely. This did not <laughs> originate anytime uh, in the past. It was more, much more recent. Um, and I think that, you know, the church has either got to say that, uh, I mean, what is the church's position on this? Right. So we know that the Mason cell, so we know that the, the, the Joseph Smith thought that the Mason ceremony, uh, was part of the priesthood. But now we also know that, the, that it didn't exist. Like it, there's, a, it doesn't overlap. It's right? not ancient, right? It's, it's not, not an ancient ritual. And so we're, but we're led to believe that it is still, right? Right. They it, say just enough to obfuscate the issue, but never really put themselves on the record, either saying no, we got that part wrong, it's not ancient, or yes, it is ancient, and we're going to hold to that. So now they kind of obscure it and don't really get into those waters anymore, right? And you just kind of in in if you if you kind of stumble upon it, you understand that there's connection, right? And I remember I was at Barnes and Noble once and I saw a book about masonry and I opened it up and I saw an image similar to what we have here on the screen and just being like, this is, I, I didn't realize that there was such a connection. I'd heard of it. Um, but I, I think that, uh, you know, right off the bat, you know, the church is, uh, the whole temple foundation is based on deception. And, um, and it's one thing to have this kind of weird, you know, kind of, you know, fluke of history and, and whatnot, but they're connecting this to 
your eternal salvation, right? Like this place that you're going into is, I was led to believe, the most holy place on the planet, the closest I would ever come to being in God's presence. And it was all based on a deception at the outset. And it still is. <laughs> and right. um, anyway, sorry. So, no, 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 it's, it's, no, that's perfect because if the church were ever forced to comment, they would be stuck between a rock and a hard place. They do not want to be on the record saying that the Masons had an ancient true uh, ritual. I don't think they because, would say it. No. And they don't want to say that it isn't either. Right. Because they're they're aware that Mormonism has dug itself into a hole that it both has to maintain those early quotes of it being ancient and it has to acknowledge the science and history and data that says it isn't. Right. So you are. So there is a deception happening. You are being tricked and they want you to kind of not exactly know which of those it is and just leave it open for interpretation because to put themselves on the record would either a completely go against the data or a or b they would violate those early quotes by those leaders right yep okay so i want to go through a few more slides and then i want to put up some images that you provided that will show some similarities between the uh the vernacular or the wording of um, the Mason versus temple, LDS temple uh, rituals. So um, in this one, uh, this is all Masonic stuff. So this is the do guard of the fellow craft and the sign of the fellow craft. So notice that you've got kind of like your signs and your tokens. Um, notice here the highlighted sections, uh, raise the right hand uh, to the left breast with the palm towards the breast and the finger is a little crooked then draw the hand smartly across the breast from left to right and let it drop perpendicularly to the side. Uh, sign without the do guard, draw the right hand, palm open and fingers a little crooked, smartly across the breast from left to right, drop it carelessly by your side. And this won't ring a bell with uh, anybody under the age of 51 because in 1990, I think April of 1990 to be exact, I think in April of 1990, the church removed um, certain uh, hand motions that represented penalties in the temple. But it is to note that if you if you don't believe us, go do some research. And what you'll find is that prior to 1990, members of the church taking out their endowment made very similar hand gestures that the Masons had. In other words, th there really is no doubt at this point including within the church. If you go look up what the church does have to say about masonry, while they're obfuscating lots of this, what they're not going to obfuscate is that there is a connection and that Joseph Smith essentially took these things from masonry and repurposed them uh, for Mormonism. Um, so there's that one. Sign of the master mason. Drawing the uh, right, and I don't know if it must be the right hand because we're talking about the left hand just above. Drawing the right across the body from left to right side, of a line with the lower button of the vest, the hand being open before, palm down, downward, and thumb towards the body. Then drop the hand perpendicular to the side. Simply draw the right hand as above described, care, uh, carelessly across the body and drop it by the side. The reason this is important is because these are uh, penalty uh, 
uh, gestures that the Masons are making in regards to keeping their ceremony secret. And then Joseph Smith takes these hand gestures, steals them sometimes without changing them, and then other times kind of edits them a little bit so they're just a tiny bit different, but then uses them for penalty oaths in the temple uh, when he uh, delivers the endowment um, and claims that it's by revelation. And Bill, I I, uh, I don't want to be kind of jumping the gun here, but while these images and descriptions are a little bit interesting, you know, nothing's too disturbing yet, right? It's not really describing what these mean. Um, but when you're with when you're doing these gestures, you're explicitly saying what they mean, and uh, and so we'll get into that, I'm sure. Yeah, there is there are words that go with these gestures, and they tell the story. So there's that. Uh, this is slide seven. Here's number eight, uh, sign of the fellow craft, raise the right hand to the left breast with the palm towards the breast and the fingers a little crooked, then draw the hand smartly across the breast, dropping it perpendicularly to the side. Sign without due guard, draw the right hand open, palm and fingers a little crooked, smartly across your breast from left to right, drop it carelessly by your side. And then there's this one, which we will start to get into some of the language and you'll notice how similar this is. So this is the uh, this is one of the rituals within masonry, and uh, the um, one person participating says, "What is that?" The other person says, "The pass grip of the fellow craft." The other person says, "Has it a name?" Then the other says, "It has." Will you give it to me? Uh, and the response is, "I did not so receive it. Neither will so impart it." Bill, I've never been through masonry, but you're giving me flashbacks right now. This is amazing. Yeah. that you Anybody who's been through an endowment, again, I haven't been through, obviously, in years. So, And I know there have been significant changes made relatively recently. I kind of know what those changes are, but there is the chance that even some of this kind of stuff has changed. And I, I could be saying something about the way it used to be, thinking it's still there, and maybe it's not. But if anybody... Um, wants to to comment below the YouTube video and say whether you've been through the temple since those changes and can confirm that this part is still here. I have to imagine it is because it's such an important part yeah. of the endowment ceremony. Um, I, I don't know if you've been recently, if you'd be able to comment on that. I, mean, I think I've been more recently than you, but I, I, I'd imagine this isn't one of the questionable areas. I mean, when they make changes, it's because... Yeah it's rubbing someone the wrong way or it's freaking someone out. Yeah. <laughs> so this type of thing, I don't think freaks people this, out. This much. probably isn't it. <laughs> yeah. So, so that will look deeply familiar to anybody who's been through the temple. All right. Now I want the viewer to grasp that leaders are stuck and, and they're stuck between the original Mormon ceremony. That is not what Joseph Smith claimed it to be. It's not an ancient ritual. The Masons didn't have some corrupted form of an endowment that it, by today's data, that's just absurd. So they're trying, they're stuck between that original Mormon ceremony that they have to keep at least to some degree intact. Otherwise, the average member of the church would, looking in the history, become deeply disturbed that what they're going through now has no semblance to what was done originally. And they are constantly having to revamp it because... Um, because there are parts of the temple that are deeply sexist, which they've removed a bunch of that just in recent years. Uh, there are a bunch of the original endowment that was deeply disturbing 
to the point where the church got so uncomfortable with it that they began to edit and change it. Um, and so I thought we could at least right now put up some of these other pictures that show um, I'm, I'm going off of Moroni. I'm going off of on the right hand side. It tells you the page number from the Mason stuff. Yeah. And I'm going to assume that the lower page number is the first one you want to talk about. If it's not, um, if you can see the screen, if it's not yeah. the one you want, I can pull one of the other two up. No, yeah, this is, I think this is good to, to go over first because this is Please. the, this goes over the first oath. And so this is just some research I did um, when it, when it kind of hit me what was happening. And I guess, I don't know if I can share a little bit of my own experience here now, Bill, but um, you know, I, I had, I've been going through a, a faith, uh, faith transition for a while now. Um, it, it, many years, like most people, right. And like a lot of people, and um, <clears throat> kind of trying to deal with it and everything like that. And then I'd, I'd come across the idea that, you know, the Mason, uh, uh, the masonry stuff is really similar to, to the temple stuff. And, and then, and I kind of learned it a little bit. Um, sorry, I'm not being really articulate right now, but I, I, there came a point where I, I, I made a connection and this is one of the biggest WTF moments of my life. And I mean, I've never, like, it really just blew my mind that the um that the, the the strange signs and tokens that we do in the temple are actually vestiges of these death oaths and so um and uh and it kind of went into uh, a tailspin a little bit and i did some research so this is research that i found okay um so this on so this is the first oath that you make uh the temple version is on the left knit there and i'll say that this is a really old version because it's hard to find this type of stuff but like if you go to that that uh that uh, web address down there this is from a i think it's a i think it was a salt lake newspaper or it might have been somewhere else but it's a a, a newspaper from 1906 <laughs> and just a note too I'm, I'm i don't want to get into the story here but there is a fascinating connection between um joseph smith and masonry that's beyond his participation in it i think it's his um one of his first plural wives who is i think lucinda pendleton harris and there's a relation, a connection to her first husband, George Harris. And I believe it's this Captain Morgan that they're talking about here on the bottom right with the link. And I would just encourage people. It's a fascinating story. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. But it is just one more kind of strange story that connects Masonry and Mormonism. I'll leave it at that. People can go off and chase it. But if you look for Lucinda Harris, Joseph Smith, George Harris, Masonry, you'll come into that incredible story and I would just leave it for folks to go do that on their own. Thanks. Yeah. So this, um, so on the temple here, I won't read this full quote and, um, and I don't know how, I don't know. So like I said, this is from a, a newspaper in 1906. I'm not sure how this may have differed between, between you know, 1906 and 1991, but this is the language that was remo removed in 1991. And, uh, and so you, after you um, do the first token, uh, um, you get received the wrong priesthood, the first token of the wrong priesthood. You say that you used to say this. Should I do so? Um, I agree that my throat may be cut from ear to ear, and my tongue uh, torn out by its roots. And then, um, and then on the masonry side, uh, I, I took out the relevant part of their first step, and uh, and what they say there, that's underlined. Um, I'm binding myself under no less penalty than to have my throat cut across, my tongue torn out by the roots. And my body buried in the rough sands of the sea at low watermark. And so, and this is, 
and Bill, in those previous slides you you had been described, they described kind of like the hand actions. And so this is the hand action where you would take your 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 hand and you would put your thumb uh, under your ear on, on your your left ear, and then you would actually you know slice it. Yeah, just like that. You just slice it across your neck to your other ear, um, and then uh, and so and we'll we'll do this with the other ones. But this is just so important to me is that. So when we hold our hand up to the square, that's what we do now. So in the temple now, you hold your hand up to the square, and you're you're muted, Bill. But um, but yeah, I was saying the, thumb extended. So thumb, when you thumb, hold your hand up, when you make that motion, yes, that's you're you're connecting the dots here. Right, exactly. Thumb extended because that was the knife that you just cut your throat with. Mm -hmm. All right, and um, and so and so I did that. Right, the whole reason I was holding that hand up was a vestige of this death oath, this, this promise that if I ever did reveal these things, that um, I agree that my throat could be, be could be cut. And Mormonism so, probably wouldn't answer your question, but if you were able to get Mormonism or one of its leaders, like essentially is what I'm saying, if you could get one of its leaders to be on the spot and go, hey, what is this symbolic of? And if they were being honest, they have to tell you, like, it's symbolic of the penalty oath where you take your thumb as a knife and cut your throat off. Right. And I don't, I don't think they say that, frankly, I think they lie about it. I think they say something about the straightness of the edge and how it's a, it, working with exactness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. I don't think they'd say anything about it, frankly. Right. Um, but, uh, and so that's, so that's the first one. Um, let's go to the next one. Okay. Let me uh, see if, I think it's this one here. Let me make it a little bigger. Okay. So this is the second oath. Um, and I'll kind of just read through the temple portion of it. Uh, mm -hmm. It says here, we and each of us do solemnly promise and bind ourselves never to reveal any of the secrets of this priesthood with its accompanying name and sign, grip or penalty. And this is what we used to say. Should we do so, we agree that our breasts may be torn open, our hearts and vitals torn out and given to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then on the other side, you can see that the corollary masonry I'm binding myself under no less penalty than to have my left breast torn open and my heart and vitals taken from the fence and thrown over my left shoulder, carried into the valley of Josephat, there to become prey to the wild beasts of the field. And so we, um, in, the, in the hand motion that we used to do here, we would say, we would take our right hand and hold it up to our heart and we would rip, we would take it out, we would, and then, uh, and, and our, our hand would be in a cupping shape. It would, it, so the, the resulting action is that our hand goes down to our side and is in cupping shape because it's in cupping shape because you're holding your heart. You had just right. torn your out heart your fell heart. out and you caught it in your cup. Right. And, um, and so now, so now we don't, yeah. uh, we don't do that anymore. Um, now, uh, you know, when I went through the temple, my, my, my participation in this was to just hold out my hand in cupping shape. And, um, and so, uh, Go ahead, go into the next one. And, and, and we'll one. get to those too. We will show some of those signs and things. So let me just see if I got the right page. There's 75. So let me make that bigger. And this is the last one. Um, on the temple side, we say, you and each of you do covenant and promise that you will never reveal any of, of the secrets of the priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, and penalty. Should you do so, you agree that your body may be cut asunder and all of your bowels gush out. And then on the masonry side, they would say, finding myself under no less penalty than to have my, my body severed in two in the midst and divided to the north and south, my bowels burnt to ashes in the center, and the ashes scattered before the four winds of heaven, that they may not be the least track or trace of remembrance remain among men. And so 
they were a little more descriptive there. Uh, looks like um, boiled it down a little bit in the temple. Um, but in the temple, you know, this is where you would take your hand and thumb extended against your waist, and and you would go from left side to right side, and you would end with your hand in you know flat, palm down, uh, thumb extended. And so that's what I did when I went to the temple. You know, rather than doing this uh, explicit death oath, I would just do the last part of it. And I would just hold my hand uh, flat, uh, thumb extended, palm down. And um, and it's funny, Bill, because you know we definitely don't ever talk about this stuff, right? It's very mm-hmm. sacred, yeah, um, and secret. Uh, and even in the temple, you don't talk about it. And I remember having a conversation with my friend and his wife, and this is many years ago. But I remember we were just sit, we were sitting there talking about like, oh, I wonder what this means. I wonder what that means. And, you know, and, and maybe when you're holding your hand in cupping shape, that's when Aaron got, you know, when he was being anointed and that, that's the oil that he was holding for the priesthood and, and all this stuff. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's your heart. <laughs> you were, you had just promised that you would rip out your heart if you, if you broke your, the, the, this vow of secrecy. And, um, and, and so, uh, I don't know, it just blows my mind that, um, that we do these things, right. That these are actual things that that um that i did unbeknownst to me um and they're part of uh these depots and uh and anyway we'll we'll talk we'll talk more about it as we go so no perfect and so again maybe to say it differently mormonism uh doesn't want you to be uncomfortable it doesn't want you to know that those things are still there and it's stuck holding on to those vestiges otherwise it perceives itself as being too risky to change the ordinances so far as to create something that's not what Joseph Smith revealed. And so they really are stuck between a rock and a hard place where they need the penalty vestiges present because that's part of the endowment as it was restored. And they don't want you to know they're present because it makes everybody uncomfortable because it's not only bizarre, but it borders on unhealthy and abusive when you understand the context of it right and that's and that that's the amazing thing right it's like why is this here still like why you know they took out the language right they they're like okay we did our we did our survey and it freaks everyone out to say that they're gonna cut their throat rip out their heart and and disembowel themselves so they take out that language but yeah like you said they feel like well something still has to be there what effect would it have if you don't know what it is, right? This is part of your covenant with God, right? This is part of the deal with God. And and the church thinks that, oh, we can trick people into it and it's still going to hold some kind of efficacy with God. You know, it just doesn't make any kind of sense. Um, but it is clear that the, the church is tricking us into keeping that in there, right? Because otherwise, why did they just take it out? You know, why why not just take out the token and the sign altogether? Because, yeah. um, uh that, you know, they, they, but they feel like it still has to be there. And so they have to trick us into keeping it there. Yeah. They can't come up with a completely new token and new sign because then they would be doing the very thing they accuse other faiths of doing that led to the apostasy. Right. Yeah. So, so we're stuck in this place, which as we'll get to, it makes it worse because now you're being, it, whereas before it was in your face, at least you were cognizant of it. Today, it's being done without your consent. The vestiges of the penalties are there, which seems to indicate on some level the penalty oath is still being made, although not actively by you. I think it, the church, again, if held their feet to the fire, would say, um, and again, they're not going to be honest, I'm not going to tell you this, but if their feet were held to the fire, they would tell you, yeah, like Joseph Smith restored penalty oath. You still have to make them. We're just so uncomfortable with them that we 
we put them there, but they're so watered down and such so obfuscated that there's no way you would be able to connect the dots. Right, right. And it, it, it isn't explicit anymore. But I think mm -hmm. when you see what it's based on in masonry and you see what the church itself did, you know, prior to 1991, yeah, there's there's a connection there. And I yeah. and uh, and while it's not explicit, the only reason why you're doing those hand motions is because of those penalties. Yeah. All right. So I, I want to go see this is slide 10. So now let's talk for a moment. The the penalties. Um, the endowment ceremony was, for the most part, left completely intact from its uh, alleged restoration by Joseph Smith up into about 1921. In, I think it's 1918, um, the president of the church at the time, and I forget who it was, but the president of the church at the time put together a committee to evaluate the uh, endowment, and already the church was sensing that some of this was going to be uncomfortable as time went on. And they began to um, so make suggestions in that committee and suggest revisions, which over the course of time from 1921 to 1927, uh, there were several things changed. And the, the big one that got changed is that these penalties uh, stayed in, the motions stayed in. So the things we talked about, about cutting your throat or, or slicing your breast or cutting your bowels open, those were still there. My father-in-law made those gestures when he went through. But what they did was they took out some of the wording and replaced it with words that sounded a little healthier. So what I'm about to read to you is the first token of the Aaronic priesthood, um, basically from 1927 till 1990. And we can show some other slides here as well. Uh, the first token of the Aaronic priesthood, Elohim says, we will now give unto you the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name and sign. Before doing this, however, we desire to impress upon your minds the sacred character of the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, and penalty, as well as that of all the other tokens of the holy priesthood with their names, signs, and penalties, which you will receive in the temple this day. They are most sacred and are guarded by solemn covenants and obligations of secrecy to the effect that under no condition, even at the peril of your life, will you ever divulge them, except at a certain place that will be shown to you hereafter, uh, shown you hereafter. Before doing this, we desire to impress upon your minds the sacred character of the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its name and sign, as well as that of all other tokens of the holy priesthood with their names and signs, which you will receive in the temple this day. They are most sacred and are guarded by solemn covenants and obligations made in the presence of God, angels, and these witnesses to hold them sacred and under no condition will you ever divulge them except at a certain place in the temple that will be shown to you. The representation of the execution of the penalties indicates different ways in which life may be taken. By the way, your life, but the ways life may be taken. It, it does strike me how many times they're emphasizing, please don't share these, please don't share these, please don't share these. That seemed to um, at least kind of catch me a little bit that they're doing that. Uh, here's the actual covenant. I, and then you think of your name inside your head, right? I, covenant that I will never reveal the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, and penalty, 
Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. That phrase, rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. That phrase replaced the actual description of specifically each penalty as it was being done. So rather than I slit my throat, uh, cut open my bowels, you know, slice my, my chest open, whatever the wording was for those, they replaced all three of them with the same phrase. Rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. And um, I didn't realize that. So they, so they, but they would do the hand motion. So they would still slip still do the hand motion. Yep. So little by just to note, little by little, they're watering it down. Little by little, they're taking parts out because I think this is important. Here's why, Moroni, is once you understand the transition and all these baby steps, when you get to the end and you still have this leftover vestige of a thumb extended and a hand up or your hand in a cupping motion, you realize like, oh, this is just the final phase we're in currently. Might be watered down even further, but this is the current the final phase we're in in modern moment. But little by little, if I trace back all the things they've taken out, eventually I get back to where I'm actually doing a penalty oath and saying that I'm going to cut my own throat. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's it's fascinating to see the the transition. Yeah. Here's the I think this is the modern, this is the post-1990. Uh, before doing this, we desire to impress upon your minds the sacred character of the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its name and sign, as well as that of all other tokens of the holy priesthood with their names and signs, which you will receive in the temple this day. They are most sacred and are guarded by solemn covenants and obligations made in the presence of God, angels, and these witnesses to hold them sacred and under no condition will you ever divulge them except at a certain place in the temple that will be shown to you. I, and then you think of your name, covenant before God, angels, and these witnesses that I will never reveal the first token of the Aaronic priesthood with its accompanying name and sign. So the penalties after 1990, they're gone. But again, the tokens, the names, the signs, the things that we are doing are all directly connected to the penalties that we promise to take our own life and do harm to our own body if we revealed uh, these things. And what blows my mind here is that we're never told anything about these things, right? It's all symbolic, you know, like, um, I mean, it's, it's just, there's a certain level of deception here where, you know, they've done a survey and they realize that this freaks people out. Right. And so they take it out, but there people are still doing something like it. You know what I mean? Like they're intentionally deceiving you in what you're doing yeah. they're, they're They know that this is going to freak out, you know, especially young people going in, you know, and so they're going to change it enough that you have no freaking idea what it is. <laughs> you have no idea what's going on. Right. And, uh, but from the church's perspective, you're still, you're still in that death oath. You're still, you know, it's still part of that promise to, um, that you'll, uh, that you'd rather die than, than share these things. And, uh, it's just a, it's insidious to me, you know, it really is. And, um, you know, this place that I was told would be so spiritual and so amazing. I mean, it is just a house of deception and, uh, Anyway, sorry, I can. No, 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 no. I think this is all great. Um, I, I want to know because I think it's important. If, if you know what you make signs of today in the temple, now try to understand this image. So this image is a representation of the gestures you would make that were penalties. But take number three, for instance. If you're going to cut, you know, I'm going to stand up here. Um, if you're going to the 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 temple thing that you do 
is to have one hand holding a cup and your other hand like this with your thumb extended. And when you understand that the gesture is this, and now I end like that in the modern temple today, this is all I do. But what it is, is it's the final step of this piece that starts off here, ends here, and now I've got my hand there, thumb extended. So it, when you get it, when you see what they're doing, it is, it, it, there's no ifs, ands, or buts that the sign you just made is that you would cut your bowels open. And, and and it would be really, it would be really fun to try and pin pin someone down, you know, higher in the in the uh, in the in the church, because what would they say? I mean, they'll, all they would say is that, oh, we don't talk about sacred things. It's a sacred thing. But I mean, okay, get let's go to the, the celestial room and talk about it. <laughs> like, yeah. like why do you do that? What is the symbology yeah. for that? Right? Yeah. There is no symbology. I mean, the symbology is you just entered into a death covenant. <laughs> you know, that's the symbology. And, uh, I just, people should, people should know it, you know? And, uh, and, and even like, it's funny for, cause for a long time, I thought, you know, well, people should know what's going on in the temple before you go through it. Right. Just cause it's so different and weird. And, and, uh, and I think the church is trying to get a little more open about what you go through, but even after you go through it, you don't know what happened. Right. Like even after that, you don't realize, Oh, I've, I've just been part of, uh, covenants to, to kill myself or yeah. to, to allow myself to be killed. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, and there's a reason why they don't want you to know, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's bizarre. It's strange. Um, and it's not a holy thing. It's not something that brings you closer to God. And, um, and, uh, anyway, sorry, there's just several le levels. Yeah. To this no, it's good to stuff. Me, so. Uh, the, the second one, again, I haven't been to the temple in years and years. I, I could be getting some of this wrong, but I think if you take each of these uh, signs uh, as they are in the temple today, you can easily connect the dots on how each of the penalties as they were done prior ends up with that pose. So for instance, you know, the right hand to the square and having, uh, having you cut your breast ends up with you doing this thing where you're out in front of yourself with your hand extended and your thumb extended and you've got your other hand raised to the square. So just like number three, number two is the end position after you've completed the penalty sign. Um, and I think, again, this is crucial to the conversation. Um, I don't remember, Marona, I don't know if you do, the number one, what is the very first um, sign that we do? So the the first one is the, I believe, the, uh, the first token of the Aaronic Priesthood. And that's where you you raise your hand at the square, okay? And so I think that that's the result of this action in the first one, right? So you're yeah. cutting your throat, and you end. Yeah. And uh, I think the second one, I'm it's it's a little bit different than I because I think you end in a cupping shape on the second one rather than like you start with your hand up on your breast, but then you take it down, and uh, and 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 so in the modern version, you just start at the end with a cupping your hand in cupping shape. Yeah, I know. There's one where your your hand is palm down, back of your hand up, and your other hand is in a cupping shape. And then there's one where your hand is raised to a square and you have your hand uh, palm down, face up, thumb extended in one of the others. Right. And so yeah. I'm, I'm sim yeah. So I'm simply asking that if you go through the temple, if you watch this video and then you go through the temple, notice how the penalty that we used to make easily transfers over to the sign that you make today 
and you're essentially skipping the actual act of the penalty, but you're still in the final pose that that penalty would have you in. Right. And that's, that, that, that's the thing that really is offensive to me is that, it, that you, you are put in that pose. Yeah. You're not you told what the pose is. Yeah. You're not told what the pose is. And when you actually find out, Oh, that's the end of you committing to kill yourself. <laughs> right. Like I yeah. just, I just can't believe this isn't more of a big deal to people. Yeah. And, and like, like you did, I did the same thing, by the way, we sit inside my father-in-law knew all this stuff. He didn't say a damn word to me. Right. Instead, he allowed me to debate what these things symbolize um, to say like, hey, maybe the cup is to hold oil and like the like same kind of things you did. And nobody, nobody who's been through because they promised and they've done the penalty. So it's even more serious to them. Right. Um, everybody's promised not to talk about it. So everybody just kind of lets you guess at what it is and make assumptions in your mind and nobody tries to correct you. And I just don't understand that. Like, what's the point of it if you don't even understand it? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know. It just. Yeah. So, uh, again, we, each of us covenant and promise that we will not reveal any of the secrets of this, the first token of the ironic priesthood with its accompanying name, sign, or penalty. Should we do so, we agree that our throats be cut from ear to ear and our tongues torn out by our roots. Now, here's just another same, same uh, quote, but just another image with it. And then this is slide 13. Here's an actual image of uh, somebody in the temple doing this. This might be a reenactment by a critic of the church as well. I'm not really sure of the provenance of this image. But it does show, excuse me, it does show exactly what would have been going on at the moment. Notice the officiator is demonstrating the sign and everyone in the room is uh, mimicking the sign so that they take the penalty oath as well. Um, it, to me, it's insane that what we used to do, and then as we're pointing out today, it's still there. You just don't know it. They know it. You don't know it. You know, I'd be interested to see, Bill, when you get this up, people's comments on this, because I'm curious if this is what, yeah, I haven't been to the temple in a while, um, but we would do this, the circle of prayer. And I seem to remember that you, do, you actually do the tokens before you do the prayer, you actually do the tokens. So I'm curious, you're already, it's already, you know, a strange thing. You're in a circle, dressed in weird clothes, doing weird hand gestures. But I'm curious if you'd actually do these mimicking your death <laughs> and then have this, and then you go on to have this uh, super spiritual prayer, <laughs> prayer circle, the true mm -hmm. order of prayer, no less. And, uh, and I'm curious if people could verify in their experience, um, you know, pre-1991, when you went up to do the the uh, the prayer circle, would you actually mimic the emotions? Because I think you did. Yeah, I think so too, because you do go through all the signs while in the prayer circle right. today. Right. And so then the signs would have also, the signs wouldn't just be a standstill sign. It would have been a, a gesture that uh -huh. was the sign. So in other words, the original endowment, the signs were a moving sign. You would do something. And today you just keep your hand still or keep your, your cup still, but right. then you would have had an actual gesture rather than a still standstill position. Maybe that's why you had to have the best of feelings with everyone in the circle. You might be inspired to kill someone. Yeah, it, 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 man, it is violent, man. Can you imagine there's just a bunch of people around an altar and they're all doing these kinds of things. Yeah. And it's again, Mormonism, yeah. Mormonism convinces you to do the weird things that don't feel right. And so little by little over the course of your life, starting in primary, you're constantly giving over your inner intuition, your inner authority 
to what this thing and the people around you who have bought into it, what they convince you is right and okay. Right. Yeah. To me, it's crazy. Um, all right. We'll go over some of these changes, maybe in a little bit, um, a little further back view, essentially. Um, let me get to the next slide. This will be kind of hard to read, but this is uh, off of Wikipedia. So you can just type in temple penalties, LDS, Wikipedia. It'll be the top search result. Uh, you can go into the original oath. So again, it used to be each penalty had a very specific phrase. Uh, my throat be cut from ear to ear, my tongue torn out by its roots. Um, the other one, our breast be torn open, our hearts and vitals torn and given to the birds of the air and the beast of the field. And then the third one, as you pointed out to earlier, our body be cut asunder and our bowels gush out. And so you would do those, you'd do those gestures, you'd say those words. And then again, once we got to uh, 1927 or so, uh, they would essentially water that down a little bit. And so you can see um, some of that. And I'm, and I'm actually looking here, uh, penalties company by gestures, stage one, stage two, stage three. Um, so they've got the other ones there. The oaths that accompany the gestures resembled certain oaths performed in a particular Freemasonry tradition. So they're making the the connections there to Masonry. And then the important part here is down at the bottom, changes. Beginning in 1919, LDS Church President Heber J. Grant appointed a committee charged with revising the endowment ceremony, which was done under the direction of Apostle George F. Richards from 1921 to 1927. Among the changes instituted was a modification. By the way, if you're watching this right now and you just can't see these as well, you could hit full screen on the YouTube video and it would at least take up a little more space and be a little easier to read. Um, modification of the oaths while the gestures remained unchanged, the church uh, clarified the verbal description of the oath with the phrase, rather than do so, I would suffer my life to be taken. And then the elimination altogether in April of 1990, the LDS Church eliminated the oaths and the gestures from the endowment during the period when these oaths were used, there was no documented instance in which a person was killed or committed suicide for having violated the oaths of secrecy of the endowment. By the way, it's just unknown. Certainly people feel trauma, people be, uh, become suicidal or have suicidal ideology for a whole host of reasons. And religious trauma, there's tons of data out there to support that religious trauma does at times add to or create those kinds of feelings and thoughts. Um, but they're simply noting here, it's far back enough there's not enough documentation on the record. We don't really have the data to conclusively say it does or it did or didn't lead to somebody taking their life. And I think it is fair to say nobody went out and killed somebody, at least in modern age, although there is some data that does suggest that Brigham Young and the early leadership did use violence, even up to possibly murder, in order to silence its critics. And that is, that data is not strong enough that I would feel safe uh, making that conclusion, but I'm simply noting that there is data out there and it isn't, it isn't nothing either. It's not like I, it's not easily dismissible either. Uh, just right. to note that. And I think, you know, to give that a, a stronger context, perhaps 
you know, back when Joseph Smith did this, this was serious stuff. You know, this was really serious stuff because uh, like Joseph Smith was murdered, you know, months after he instituted this process. And, um, and I think that back then, yeah, if you told other people these secrets, I think that was a real possibility that you'd suffer repercussions, repercussions that you promised God, right? And I think, um, you know, just in kind of societal way, in the situation they were in back then, this wasn't, uh, I, I have to think it was taken seriously. Now, whether that led to people being murdered or not, I don't know. Um, but I think definitely it led to people not sharing the secrets, <laughs> and so, which was the whole point. And, um, and I think that over time, as we became more, I don't know, maybe civilized is the right word, right? You know, they've, uh, they've changed it. So it's not so um, abhorrent, uh, but it is still there. It's still there. Yeah. I was just looking unrelated, but somewhat related. I was looking at an image yesterday of Italian immigrants and how they were treated. And it was like a, it was like a giant 20 by 20 box with little tiny inner boxes that were maybe four foot by four foot, something like that. And there were like four people to each box. And this is where people stayed until the next day when you could go to work for the day and then you'd come back and this was your, your housing. This was how you, you lived. And we don't realize how, as you go back in time, what was acceptable and unacceptable. And to recognize that, as you point out, as we modernize, as we progress as a society, generally speaking, we become, we value more and more people's individual rights and move away from systems being able to egregiously abuse the individual. And you're seeing the same thing happen in Mormonism in the development of the uh, temple endowment. Can I, can I go on a little tangent too? Please. Um, and, and I'm trying to, I'm searching the website, <laughs> trying to find this, but isn't, isn't there, isn't there something in, I, I swear it was my namesake <laughs> or more, uh, or is uh, Mormon. Um, but in the end of the book of Mormon, there's like a, you know, you, you don't swear, right? You don't need to make oaths. Isn't that, isn't there something like that um, at the end of the book of Mormon? And I can't find it, but I swear there is. And I and I, the reason I bring it up is because it's just kind of funny how, you know, the church will take a stance on something or there'll be a principle, but, you know, you can bet that it's actually going to take the opposite side of that principle, right? I mean, so you can look back at the Book of Mormon and it's pretty clear that the reference and there's references in there about secret societies, right? And you're, you're, yeah, you're daddy and robbers. Yeah. Right. And it's pretty like when you look at the broader context of Joseph Smith and everything that was happening in the 19th century nature of the book of Mormon, that that was a reference to masonry, right? That they, they, they didn't like, I and mean, maybe not explicit, but it didn't like these secret societies and masonry was definitely the secret society of the time. And so it's just funny that then, you know, years later, you know, Joseph ends up pulling masonry into the book of Mormon and similar to, you know, to me, uh, you know, this is kind of a pot shop perhaps, but, um, you know, when, when, uh, when the, when, uh, the church criticizes the great spacious buildings in, in Lehi's dreams, and now all we've done is built a bunch of great and spacious buildings all over the, all over the earth. And, uh, you know, and, and the book of Mormon saying no to polygamy and then Joseph yeah, exactly. polygamy. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we take the exact opposite stance, right. And then the Rami Anthem, right. Like the whole idea that you shouldn't go up and say you're better. And, then, and that's what everyone does on testimony meeting. Right. Yeah. And in general conference. 
And then, uh, and, but lastly, I, I swear, I can't, I can't find it right now, but I swear there's a, a script, uh, a chapter even almost devoted to the idea that, you know, you, you just say, you say yay or nay, you don't swear, you don't need to swear at anything, yeah. right? Yeah. And, um, and here we are doing these elaborate, <laughs> elaborate swearings, you know, and death oaths. Um, and so anyway, I just thought I just made that connection. Um, so. I love it. Love it. All right. So now we'll move into kind of the, the to, to me is kind of the conclusion type of material. And I just want to know LDS leaders have intentionally obscured the disturbing oaths and signs so as not to create cognitive dissonance but have in fact allowed vestiges of them to remain so as not to violate the admonitions of early leaders, including Joseph Smith, that these are from God and cannot change. And so, by the way, I, just to say this too, there's a rumor out there that David Bednar has been the impetus for this, but that the church is getting ready to uh, put its temple ceremony out, visible to the public, so that... Um, so that people like New Name Noah and others can no longer capitalize on it being secret and members being caught by surprise. I've heard numerous stories of uh, New Name Noah, somebody watching his videos of the Temple Endowment, and then reaching out to him and saying, I'm a Mormon. This is crazy. Mormons don't do this. And um, Mike will go like, yeah, just wait. Wait till you go to the temple. And obviously when people go to the temple, that it absolutely is the things they do because he's recording that footage directly. And so people are going to feel a sense of betrayal. The church in its gospel topic essays, and I think also in the sense of changing the endowment and getting ready, if they are, to put it out publicly, um, it, is, it is to reduce the cognitive dissonance that people feel when they are surprised not having expected things to be what they actually are in Mormonism. And um, if that's true, if the church is about to go public with its endowment, I would simply note to people, my gut tells me that if you're going to do that, you have to first go in and take out the things that you do not want to be part of it anymore, that you do not want the world to see. So a few years ago, the church removed a lot of its sexism and it removed uh, other things that would have been disturbing to people in the endowment. And I simply want to make the connection that if I were unhealthy and deceptive and I wanted to put my endowment ceremony public in the near future, the first thing I would need to do is several years earlier is remove the parts of the endowment I didn't want to be in there for people to see. And they did that a few years ago. And it does seem like if that's the case, this was more of a long-term plan uh, that putting it out public in the next few months or year would be directly connected to them having removed the sexism only a couple of years ago. So as to create a distance between when you edit it so that it looks comfortable and when you publish what it looks like. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious uh, when and if they do that, you know, are they going to explain these uh so even, even if they did that, right? So even if they come in and they show you, like, here's the temple garb, right? Don't be freaked out when you put on the hat. You know, don't be freaked out when you have the green apron, um, even though it's Satan giving it to you. <laughs> you know, don't be freaked out. You know, we don't want it to be a complete shock. They're still not going to explain this stuff, no. right? They're still not going to say, oh, by the way, when you hold your hand up to the side, it's because you just slit your throat. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, they're not going to do that. And, and 
if you remember, it was maybe a decade or so ago that they showed garments for the first time. And so the church does have a history of as as the world becomes more aware of information, the church, while behind, does try to move with the world and look acceptable and uh, um, safe and not too crazy to the world itself. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's go into a couple more slides here. So there's another uh, uh, imitation of the, by the way, I always wanted, I always wanted the etched out uh, apron. I always thought that yeah. was so cool. <laughs> I always got the basic package because me and my wife were super poor. We were paying tithing and we didn't make much to begin with. So we didn't really have money for the nice stuff. I had the, I had the shitty slippers that, uh, <laughs> you know, and while all the rich people had all the nice tennis shoes that were white. But you're all the same, them. right? That's the whole point. You all look I, the same. Yeah. I just you wore those tell. bathroom slippers uh, in and out. <laughs> But yeah. I always wanted the the carved out apron, and I never got that. And, and my first time through, I was sitting in the endowment, and uh, when we put the garb on, I just remember looking around and going like, "Man, I feel like I'm at a baker's convention. This this is so strange," and it was so awkward to me. But like you say, we go again and again. The church wants us like expose yourself to the weird and where your gut says it doesn't quite feel right. Go expose yourself to that over and over and over again till you become numb to any negative feelings you have about it. So anyway. Yeah, it's just, um, yeah, it's just bizarre. And yeah. yeah, you do have to continue to expose yourself to it. Uh, otherwise, yeah. you know, I think you know, most most people's first impression and first instance is to never want to go back, right? Yeah. But then you're told, and it's funny because they'll say it in, like that, you know, even if it's, you know, not something you enjoy or if it seems strange, you know, you just need to keep going. It's like, what else yeah. in life is like that? <laughs> you know? Amen. So a couple of images showing today, there's one right there. And again, if we were to go back, let me go back here. So again, that number two right there, the finishing pose, there you are. So you have the cup. Now that's got Boyd K. Packer's face on it, which makes it a little funny. But uh, in this pose, you've got the cupping formation and a hand raised to the square. Yeah, cupping formation, hand raised to the square. So again, two and three have that kind of vestige to the kind of vestiges of those. But again, I, I'm I don't again I'm not um, I'm not as up to date on it because I haven't been through in in a decade. But I would just suggest that next time you're through. If you want, print off this little piece of paper and uh, take it with you and uh, see if these are similar. See if this rings a bell when you make each of those signs on each of those occasions. If it looks like the uh, gesture of the penalty at its concluding pose. And I think you will be at least awestruck and perhaps sickened by what that means. Um, so there's that. There's that. And uh, this was slide number 18. Uh, do you have any thoughts here that you want to share? Otherwise, I think uh, I'm down to just wanting to, to share kind of a conclusion um, and show one more slide and uh, kind of help us wrap up. But any thoughts before we go into that? And you're yeah, I, I do have some thoughts. Thanks. Please. Um, so I think there's a couple kind of things that we're kind of illustrating here as far as, you know, there's a clear... Um, if, if you're if you're believing in the church you know there's there's something going on here right there's they're they're changing the doctrine like if you thought it was important to not change the doctrine they clearly have 
right? And we haven't even gone through some of the other bizarre things. Um, you know, they used to have this thing called the law of vengeance, where I'm not sure when they took this out, but you used to each covenant that you would, I mean, I'm going I'm to read it real quick. It says, uh, you and each of you covenant and agree that you will pray and never cease to pray, almighty God, to avenge the blood of the prophets upon this nation. And you will teach the same to your children unto the third and fourth generations. All bow your heads and say yes. That seems like a pretty big thing to take out of it if you think that it's important. And to by the way, today. juxtapose that. Juxtapose that with the amount of patriotism the church today tries right. to uh, compel you to have. And then noting how unpatriotic uh, the church was in the oath that it took in its ancient history. Right. It's yeah. kind of they take the attitude that they need to, to to serve their ends. Back then, we were isolating ourselves, and so now we want to be part of everything. And so, amen. Uh, and then the, another thing that they they that we didn't talk about was we used to we used to speak at the Adam Adamic language in the temple, and uh, you know rather than say, um, you know, hear the words of my mouth, we would oh say, God, hear the words of my mouth. Yeah, right. We would say pal ll. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and they've taken that out, and that seems like you know pretty important to me. Um, and just another one, when I was, when I went through in 97, I wore that sandwich board shield, right? It was a, just yeah. a thin fabric yeah. that covered kind of my front and covered my back, but it was open on the sides. Imagine a sandwich board, but with fabric. And then uh, one stranger would reach in with uh, water and would touch various parts of my body, touch my loins, by the way, touch my, my ribs, touch my, my ears, touch my, eye, you know. And essentially touch all of my body, promising me that if I live the gospel, that I would have um, uh, strength and gifts in the senses and in the functions of my body. And then a second person would come along with oil and do the exact same thing. And today, uh, it's it, all of that direct touching has been removed, and it's much more symbolic. Um, you no longer wear that shield, and so you're not really, you know, 80% naked inside of a room with strangers. Now, now it's done differently, but just to note again, all the things that are changed that have changed that you're pointing to. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's kind of my final thought then, I guess, um, on these issues, you know, it's important to me uh, to share these things, I think. Um, and, you know, to anyone who's watching this and is, and I'm sure, I'm sure you get criticism, criticism all the time, Bill. And, uh, and I'm sure people are going to watch this and say that, we're mocking sacred things that we're not taking this stuff seriously. And I just, um, I, I wrote out this piece here that I want to read, um, you know, that it, it is, this is very serious. And I think if the, if the church, and if you, if you want to look and say that you're not doing those anymore, we don't do it with them anymore. So you, you don't have anything to complain about, I think. And, and uh, you know, and I, and I think if the church were to be transparent, they would explain it like this, you know, they would say, you know, we, we used to promise to, to, we used to promise to a mimic cutting our throats and having our tongues ripped out by drawing our thumb against our throats from ear to ear. Now we just hold our hand to the square with the thumb extended. We used to promise to a mimic ripping our hearts out from our chest and giving them to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field by placing our right hand against our left breast and then drawing it quickly down. Now we just hold our hand in cupping shape. We used to promise to and mimic disemboweling ourselves by drawing our hand across our abdomen with, uh, with by drawing our hands across our abdomen. And now we just hold the hand palm down with the thumb extended. And I think that it is deceptive. I mean, clearly, I mean, there, there's no doubt the church is trying 
actively trying to be deceptive to, to, to try and hide this information. Um, and I think that, uh, uh, I, I think that you should know. I think everyone, everyone is going through the temple. Everyone, everyone who has gone through the temple should know this. And I, and just kind of tying this together to the, to when we first opened, um, and, uh, you know, and the issues about fraud, I think that the, um, I think that the, the question that you, we meet all of the criteria for fraud, you know, they've made these representations, uh, concerning material, uh, present existing facts, um, that were false and uh that they knew it they I mean they, they, it is their it is it is their intent to deceive you right they don't want you to know that you're that you're these symbols are symbolic of death oaths um and they they deceived you uh, for the purpose of inducing you to act upon it and i acted ignorantly upon it um i think millions of mormons have um and uh, we did rely upon the representations we were induced and so the question is, what injury, what damage did you have? And I do think that, um, you know, depending on the person, I think when someone finds out uh, what they've been through and the deception, um, I think that you can claim damages. Uh, I think it's a difficult thing to, to prove emotional damages. Um, but I think uh, if anyone um, has gone through the process, of, if, you, if you had any kind of expert, any kind of therapist or doctor um, who was able to verify the damages you suffered, um, I, I think, you know, personally, um, I think that, uh, I mean, I, I still feel like, so I'm, I'm still attending. Okay. And, and I, we had a, we had a discussion in, uh, in the class I was in about covenants, right. And temple covenants and the covenant path, which is just all the rage. Right. And I couldn't sit in there. Like I literally could not sit in there when I was thinking about what it really is and what really happens Like this covenant path that you established in the temple or the end result is going to the temple and how it's not, it's nothing like what they say it is. Right. And, and, and it's actually just deceptive and what was supposed to be the most holy place on the whole planet, you know, actually is the place where I've done the most bizarre things in my life. And, um, and I think, you know, can I claim damages? Well, I've certainly have been damaged. Uh, you know, is it enough to warrant trying to file a lawsuit or anything like that? You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of other things you have to consider, um, but I think that uh, I think that there could be people out there, you know, if who have suffered if they're willing. I think there's um, at least uh, grounds, you know, whether or not they'd be successful, I don't know. But I think that I almost want someone to do that. And I don't, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I, I to me, I I just want this to be more well known because you know, like even after I'd already have my faith. A crisis and faith transition, you know, years later, it took me, you know, and I feel like I'm like an expert on <laughs> all this stuff, you know, and it still took me years to make the connections, you know, and, uh, and I don't think it should be like that. I think that it should be a very common thing that people know that, um, that they're tricked into taking part in these death oaths and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, maybe the church would end up taking them out altogether if, if it got enough notoriety. I mean, I'm sure they would, honestly. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's the pattern of what they do, which is soon as it appears to go too far in modern sensibilities, it disappears. Right. And so and I don't necessarily, I mean, I think they should take it out if they're not going to explain it. I mean, I just think they should explain it. I think that everyone should yeah. know, everyone should know what's happening. You yeah, know, they're not going to do that. They will we, eventually disappear. And we used to, and Bill, like we gave them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, think about how insidious this is, right? Like you go in there, you're you're totally trusting. I mean, you're so vulnerable. You're giving them all of your trust. And and then they make you do these bizarre things. 
and they don't explain any of it, right? And it turns out it's like the most, it's even more bizarre than you thought. <laughs> you know, it's even worse than you thought. And it's actually, it's actually insidious. It's actually like, um, you know, like a, a very strange and, and horrible thing. Um, and you trusted them. You know, I trusted them to not do that to me, right? Um, and and they did, and they did it flagrantly, and they did it with the purpose to deceive me. <laughs> like I just can't believe this happens. Yeah. I don't know. Like if you, yeah. if if we can't file lawsuits, you should be able to. <laughs> like this is this this is not okay. This isn't a, an okay thing. Yeah, and and I'll add. I mean, Joseph Smith. If you understand the early folk magic and treasure digging, Joseph Smith learned at a very young age, maybe as young as 13 or 14 years old, and maybe younger, um, that certain, by doing rituals, you can trick people into loyalty, you can trick people into belief, you can trick people into fear. And um, Joseph Smith, from a young kid on, understood that when you enact gestures and have certain rites and rituals, you can get people to believe and do things that they uh, might not have believed or done without it. Right. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Bill, before I forget, I just wanted to mention, and I was going to mention this earlier that, you know, everything that, that I've brought to this conversation, as far as references to legal cases and things like that, like none of this should be taken as advice legal advice you know these are just my kind of my hobby horse presenting information that's available to everyone yeah. um and i'm not making any direct direct accusations against the church or or any uh particular people just ex uh, describing my experience and um and i guess maybe i am making some accusations <laughs> in that i don't think you have to worry about a lawsuit from the church because if the church sued you they'd have to go on the record answering some questions that's, that's a good point that's a good point they tend to stay away from dragging anything into a courtroom that's going to bite them in the ass right yeah uh i i really appreciate everything you've said today i want to wrap up with just a couple of thoughts i want to put the last slide up this is the law of consecration that folks enter into in the church um Peter says, a couple will now come to the altar. We are instructed to give unto you the law of consecration as contained in the book of doctrine and covenants in connection with the law of the gospel and the law of sacrifice, which you have already received. It is that you do consecrate yourselves, your time, talents, and everything with which the Lord has blessed you or with which he may bless you to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and for the establishment of Zion. All arise. Each of you bring your right arm to the square. Again, you're symbolizing uh, to some degree a penalty. We think, you and I thought, I'm just raising my arm to the square. It's how I promise to tell the truth, right? Like right. it's how I, it's how, you know, when you go into a courtroom, raise your arm to the square, put a hand on a Bible. Um, but when you understand these vestiges, it, 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 Almost assuredly, at least in this one, the other ones I 100% think it's dead on. Right. In this one, at least, I'm going to say it almost assuredly is symbolic of a penalty vestige of what will happen if you don't follow the promise that you're making. Um, you and each of you covenant and promise before God, angels, and these witnesses at this altar that you do accept the law of consecration as contained in this, the book of doctrine and covenants, and then the person displays the book in that you do consecrate yourselves, your time, talents, and everything with which the Lord has blessed you 
or with which he may bless you to the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the building up of the kingdom of God on earth and for the establishment of Zion. Each of you bow your head and say, yes, that will do. And so just to note the commitment that's being asked of people to dedicate their entire life, their time, their energy, their resources, so that this church can keep collecting billions of dollars in a bank account, so that it can keep using free labor everywhere, so that it can become such a huge landowner and property owner and have so much access to assets, land, and resources. And yet you are deceived in the beginning when you are given a chance to leave but don't know what you're leaving. You are deceived all through the endowment when all of these signs and tokens uh, and oaths uh, have vestiges of penalties where you don't even know it, but you're symbolically promising unknowingly to take your life if if you do if you reveal these things or if you don't keep your covenants. So that's number one. Number two, it's abusive and non-consensual. The endowment is a ritual meant to deepen your loyalty to the LDS Church and its leaders. There is a physicalness. We were talking about this in prep. Uh, it's not just words. It's not sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Because you are being asked to do things with your body, because you're being asked to make certain signs, because you're being told what underwear to wear, because you're being told not to laugh too loud, loud, sorry, because you're being told this and that and the other thing, there's a physicalness to these temple covenants that aren't just somebody calling you a not nice name. There's something deeper and... Um, more grounded when you participate in something that involves you having to uh, place your body into certain positions so that you can take upon you certain obligations, um, just to note that as well. And then lastly, it is a trick where only one side is aware of what is being promised and the other side is being duped into obligations and covenants they weren't informed about. While your parents and grandparents may likely be aware of these vestiges, you are not, and hence you are being tricked. Um, and so I would simply say that every person who is a faithful, believing member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or any of its breakoffs who still do an endowment for that matter, you have a right to understand the context and the connections and the things you're about to promise before you do, so that you can make a consensual decision and so that you can make a uh, informed decision, which consent deeply relies on you having access to all the available information. And if the church intentionally does not give you that, which it's not in multiple places in the endowment, if it's not, it's not consensual. And the church is doing something that is deeply unhealthy. And even if you believe in what they're doing, you know, like it, there's no question it's deceiving people right now. Right. They took out these things, but they left part of it in, in an act of deception. Yeah. Um, Bill, can I say a couple things real quick too? Please. So on the points that you just raised to me, you know, all this stuff is super troubling, right? Everything is troubling. Very, uh, you know, sad. Um, and, uh, but I think that the, what you have up on the screen right now, this is ultimately the biggest problem. This, to me, um, when it comes to the temple, is that you've gone, you've, you've, you've checked off all the boxes, you qualify, 
you know, you're you devoted your life to the church, you're doing all these things, you've gone to the holy place. This is the closest we're gonna get to God. And now you're at the highest, the highest promises you're making, right? And you're not even promising God. <laughs> you're not even if you read it, it says you and each of you covenant and promise before God. Your promises to the church, like the highest of so the highest, the highest height that we reach on this planet is just promising to give the corporation everything. And, uh, and so right there, like to me, that's the probably, probably the nice cherry on top of everything of how that's the goal and that's what you get to. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's a problem. Um, I did want to say that, uh, you know, it's not my intention to, uh, to share this, to ruin people's experiences. I know lots of people have lots of good experiences in the temple and, and I'm not here to say that those experiences are in, are not valid. Um, I think if someone is listening to this um, and they're hurt by it, uh, you know, the person, the organization to blame is the church. The church is the one who deceived you. Um, and and I think I don't think you have to discount your spiritual experiences. Um, I think that because I think that, uh, you know, um, that those type of things can happen anywhere. And, and especially when you consider that they happen in the temple, it can happen there. It can happen anywhere. Yeah. And uh, and so I think that you can still have a, a relationship with the divine, with Heavenly Father, with Jesus or whatever. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, any any pain that you feel, the group, the person you need to direct that to is the church, you know, and, and the church should be an object of scorn. You know, it should be um, some, you know, pointed at and, and, and uh, derided because they did this, you know, and we believe them and we trusted them and they betrayed us in, in, in ways that are indescribable to me. And in ways that they can't even, no one else could even do this. <laughs> I wouldn't give this much trust to anyone else, you know, like, and they, and they betrayed me um, and everyone. And, and there's no doubt they have betrayed everyone. I mean, they are actively deceiving people. And, uh, and so I think uh, if you are sad, I'm sorry, um, you know, uh, but don't discount the things you've been through you they still are they, they, they still are meaningful things um you know and i think that uh you can get those you can maintain those same experiences elsewhere um you know but i think if you're upset and you're sad the person the group you should be upset with is the church amen i love it moroni thank you very much for helping put this together and uh, what i'm going to do is i'm going to pull us off people can see one more time the background image of the endowment room and then we'll just close out the episode um, thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate your time. Okay. Take it easy.